have a red light. Is that good? All right. Well, good morning. I got a, a note from Joel, I think Wednesday, uh, saying, hey, can you teach for me Sunday? I'm, I think he's in Texas or somewhere. So I said, uh, uh, okay. <laughs> Yeah, so I have a, a lesson here that I did over in Mike's class a, a while back when he was out one week, and uh, the recording wasn't working over there, so I'm going to do it over here and uh, go through this. Um, so let's open up with a, with a word of prayer here. Ask the Lord to bless our time this morning. Father, we uh, come before you. Father, just so thankful that we can. And Lord, we just realize that it's only through the shed blood of Jesus Christ that we have access before Your throne, that we can come to You in prayer and cast all of our cares upon You. And Lord, I know in a room of this size there are many, many needs this morning. We are a needy people, ever in need of You, and Your grace, and Your mercy, and, and Your sovereignty in our lives. And so, Lord, we just lift up before You this morning all the families represented in this room this morning, and just pray that You would use the circumstances of our lives to bring glory to, to Your name. Father, we thank You this morning for Your Word. We thank You that You took Your truths that we, that we need so desperately and had them written in a book, text on paper, so that we have an objective outside of ourselves and our feelings source of truth. And Lord, as we open Your, your Word this morning and look at this passage of Scripture, we just pray that You would use it in our lives to to show us Jesus ever more clearly, that we may see our Savior and worship Him, or if we don't know Him, to come to know Him, and if we do, to worship Him ever more. So thank you this morning for this time, thank you for uh, your word, and we just pray you would use it for your purposes and your glory. In Christ's name we pray, amen. Okay, so today we're going to be looking at a, at a story. This is not a parable, 
This is a, an actual historical event that occurred while Jesus walked the earth in his uh, first advent. And it's recorded in all three of the Synoptic Gospels and is in Matthew 19, Mark 10, and Luke 18. And it's the encounter we've come to know as the rich young ruler. So we're going to look, be looking primarily this morning at Mark's account in uh, Mark chapter 10. So turn to Mark 10. And we're going to start um, down in verse 17. So we're going to look primarily at Mark's account in chapter 10 and pull from the other two uh, when we need to. I think Mark has the, the richest account here with some, of the, some, some good details in it that we'll look at. And it's uh, some good things in here for our lives today. There's, there's a lot we can learn from this encounter that Jesus had with who we've come to know as the rich young ruler. So the first thing we need to do is set the background for this encounter. Matthew's account tells us that Jesus had left Galilee and was in the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. And he was teaching and large crowds were following him. So in Mark 10, 17, it starts with, and as he, Jesus, was setting out on his journey, a man ran up. So all Mark tells us is this is a man who came running up to Jesus as he was about to leave. Now the parallel account over in Luke 18 tells us this, and a ruler asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So we know this was a a male and a ruler so far from that. And all three accounts tell us later, sort of at the punchline at the end there, that he is rich. So we have this rich male ruler. I can't find anything that tells us his age. Um, The word for man in Matthew and Mark just means male and doesn't refer to you know, the age or a season in life or anything. However, Matthew 19.22 tells us he was a young man. So from these three clues and all three Gospels, we piece together that this was a rich young ruler. I mean, that's probably what it says in a, a lot of our Bibles over these different sections of Scripture in the, in the uninspired headings there right, that were added much later. So we can piece together from the three uh, Gospels that he was a rich, young, and ruler. And for those that just came in, we're going to be in Mark uh, 10 today. Mark 10, 17 is where we're starting. So we have a rich, young ruler. Now think about those three words for just a moment. Rich, young, and ruler. Is that not the pinnacle of what most of the folks in the world are after? Right? Money, youth, and power. So he is rich, and he's young, and he has some form of power. He's a ruler. And so to the world today, 
This man has it all. What so many people are searching for and giving everything they have and going after with all the gusto they can. This guy has it. He has it all. He has arrived. You know, in our society today, it's, it's like you can pick one, maybe two, three is pretty much out of the question. Right? He's, you know, he's not old and, and decrepit and poor, but finally has some power. And he's not rich and powerful, but too old. And he's not young and powerful, but poor. I mean, from the world's perspective, he's got the trifecta, right? Wealth, youth, and power. What more could a person want? I mean, we're surrounded by people out there that are just going after these as much as they can. So let those adjectives for this person sink in for a bit. And think about where this where this guy is in life. So many are sold out to the pursuit of these three, and this guy has it. But notice something. He's coming to Jesus because although he has these things, it's apparent he still knows something is missing. Something is missing. So even if you are wealthy and and have money to spare, or if you have the fountain of youth, or you're a ruler of the people with some power, or even all three at once, something's missing. So he comes running up to Jesus and admits that he is missing something. Eternal life. And this... This apparently isn't just some curiosity on his part. Unlike another ruler named Nicodemus who came to Jesus at night, this young ruler runs right up to him during the day. And he doesn't just run up and blurt out his question. Look at the detail there in verse 17. Where it says, A man ran up, and knelt before him. So he comes up and kneels before Jesus. I think that tells us something as to this man's sincerity in looking for an answer to this longing that he has. You know, there's no indication here that this is just another one of those setups where they're, they're just asking questions to try and catch Jesus in something. Right? No, no indication of that here. So it seems there's a hint here of desperation and some humility to go along with it. Because think about it. A ruler runs up and bows before Jesus. Large crowds are following him. And so he runs up and bows before Jesus in the political climate of that day and the religious climate of that day. And what was that? So to get a little context here of where we are in the relationship between Jesus and the rulers or the leadership of the day, I'll just tell you where we are in this chapter 
I mean, if you, if you look up in verse 2 of Mark 10, it says, And the Pharisees came up, and in order to test him and ask, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? And so they're already after him. They're already trying to catch him in things. They're already trying to find something to use against him. And they're trying to trap Jesus. It was seven chapters earlier, back in Mark 3, that the Jewish leaders are already accusing Jesus of doing what he does by the power of Satan. So things are already soured there. And that was a huge turning point. Matthew's account of this same conversation is in chapter 19 and is also past that accusation. And Jesus has switched to teaching in parables. And seven chapters earlier in Matthew's gospel, back in Matthew 12, it says, But the Pharisees went out and conspired against him how to destroy him. So that's the climate, right? That's sort of the, the uh, relationship that's going on here between Jesus and the other uh, rulers. And in the midst of that, one of these rulers runs up to Jesus in the daytime, in the midst of large crowds, and kneels before him and asks this question. So I give this guy some credit. And it just points out to his sincerity and some humility on his part. I think this is going to cost him. They're trying to destroy Jesus, and here's one of them running up, kneeling down before him, and asking him this kind of question. So think about this. You have a person who comes to the right source, Jesus Christ himself. He comes apparently with a sense of something's missing. He comes with enough humility to kneel before Christ. And he comes with a good question. Not a perfect question that we'll see, but a good one. The question is at least an honest one that he knows he doesn't have eternal life. So if we continue on in Mark 10 here, it says he runs up, he kneels down, And he asked, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? At the end of verse 17 there. Now what is presupposed by that question? Yeah. What else is presupposed by that question? That he's good, yep. That you have to do something, right? Let's key off of that word do there. Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? So his presupposition here is there is something you do or perform in order to get eternal life. It's a matter somehow of my doing. And in fact, in Matthew's account... In 1916, he makes it even clearer as he records the question with a tiny bit more detail. Teacher, 
what good deed must I do to have eternal life? So adding in there that this man has a, a works, you know, slash performance mindset. Like the majority of the planet today. How do I make sure my good outweighs my bad and all that good stuff? So, now we know that we don't do or perform anything that ever could, A, pay the price for our sins, the just price for our sins, and B, somehow grant us the perfect righteousness that's required. That can never be the result of our activity or our performance. It's beyond us to do either, much less both. Right? If you commit a crime and you go before a judge, no amount of future good works will pay the price for your past crime, right? You don't stand before a judge down here at the Cherokee County Courthouse and go, I promise to do better in the future. And he goes, oh, well, okay. Right? So no amount of good performance in the future will pay the penalty for our past crimes of rebellion against God in this case. Right? A just judge must extract the declared penalty for the past crime. So there's nothing I can do or perform that will pay the price for our sins. This guy doesn't realize that yet. But in another sense, there is something we, quote, do to inherit eternal life. We aren't just zapped by a lightning bolt, right? We repent and believe. So we repent We turn from the sin that we love, and we believe, and we trust, right? And we lay down our arms in our battle against God. We drop all pretense of self-righteousness, and we lean wholly on Jesus and His performance, His work, His doing. But Jesus doesn't give him that answer. That is the answer, right? Repent and believe. Jesus doesn't go there. It's always interesting. Instead, he's going to dive into this a bit with this rich young ruler. And once again, looking at his responses and these one-on-one conversations he has with people as he's walking around on this planet are just fascinating. So look at what he says in verse 18 here. And Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? (laughs) And we're left going, huh? (laughs) Really? That's your response? Why in the world do you go there? So I hope when you read the scripture, you try to put yourself there and forget you've read it a hundred times and follow along with these kind of questions and answers when you read. Because it makes you look for the answers in the text. Why did he go there? Why was that his response? That's an odd response. 
So let's do that. First, he calls Jesus a good didaskalos, or teacher, or instructor. Right? And our word didactic comes from that, which means intended for instruction. So that presents our first problem. Right? This man's knowledge of who he's talking to. Jesus to him is just a teacher. So Jesus latches on to that and goes to make a point. Not about his use of the word teacher, but of his adjective, good. So what's the point of Jesus' question? I think the next phrase tells us where he's going. Where he says, no one is good except God alone. There at the end of verse 18. So it's as if he's saying, I see you called me good. Let's talk about that. I'm not talking about good as in being proficient as a teacher, right? Or or really able to explain things well. I'm not talking about that. Let's talk about good as in perfection, right? A moral perfection. If you're calling me good, and there is none righteous, no, not one, there is only one truly perfect good. And that's God and God alone. No one is good except God alone. Now that's interesting in light of all those who take the view today of that Christ was a good moral teacher or example. And that's it. Jesus uses the very word good here to drive home his point. That's not an option when you're talking about him, that he was just a good moral teacher. You can't stop there. So his point to this rich young ruler is there is this first necessary prerequisite to inheriting eternal life. And that's to recognize who you're talking to, right? It's the, it's the question, who do you say that I am? This is one of the reasons Jesus' answers are so fascinating. I mean, you can walk up and say something like, I say, good fellow, nice weather we're having today. And he can take that <laughs> and take your throwaway adjective and say, oh, let's, let's talk about that. Why do you call me good? Turn it into a deep spiritual point. So you can't inherit eternal life if you think Jesus was a good moral teacher or just a really good example, right? A good um, justice warrior of his day, just just a role model on how to love others. That will not save you. You start with him as the incarnate Son of God which is where Jesus has taken this fellow. The second person of the triune Godhead, the I am in the flesh. So Jesus, in essence, says, I'm going to take your adjective. You called me good. And I'm going to use it to say the first thing you need to recognize is I am God incarnate in the flesh. There's none good but God, and I am He. 
I am the Son of God incarnate. Now you can say all the nice things about Jesus you want, and it's okay, but say this, separate yourself from most of the planet, that He is God. I remember a phone call I had several years ago. And I don't remember if it was the Jehovah's Witnesses or the Mormons, but it was one of them. And they started, I, I let them talk for a while, and they told me all this stuff. And, and I said, well, I, I believe that Jesus Christ is God in the flesh. And boy, it, it turned on a dime. Right, when you get down to that point, you are in a class over here with the rest of the planet over here. Right, it's, it turned into a bit of an argument at that point because that was the key. Right? Who is Jesus Christ? That's the key. Who do you say that I am? And Jesus has taken this rich young ruler there, right? You call me good, none is good but God alone. Why do you say that? So let's talk about this scenario that has unfolded in, in terms of you know, what we would do today. So imagine this. You have, you have a guy that comes up to you, shows some humility, and he asks point blank, what must I do to be saved? In basketball, we call that a slam dunk, right? I mean, that's a, that's a softball, right? But Jesus does something weird right? <laughs> to our mindset today. He goes to the law. So you could say he's blowing this fantastic opportunity. But look in verse 19. It says, you know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, and honor your father and mother. He quotes six commandments. Now what do you notice about these six? They're the the horizontal commandments, right? The Ten Commandments starts with the vertical requirements between us and God and then has the horizontals that are between us and others, how we relate to others. So Jesus, in answering this man's question about how to inherit eternal life, very interestingly skips the vertical commandments and points out six of the horizontal commandments. What's he up to? And I think we see it next in verse 20. So this rich young ruler replies and says, And he said to him, Teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. Um, Yikes. So here we get to the root of the issue as to why he does not have eternal life. He doesn't know who Jesus is, and he doesn't know who he is. Right? He's got his doctrine of God, his theology proper, wrong. And he's got his anthropology, his doctrine of man, wrong. 
And you've got to get those right. Not 100%. And you don't need to know all the right fancy terms. But you do have to know who Jesus is. And you do have to recognize things about yourself before you even get to the message of the cross and have it make sense. Now I would imagine 99% of us in this room would understand this and know what's up, but it never hurts to repeat it. So we have this rich young ruler who seems to have it all, and he comes to the right source with the right question and with seemingly a right attitude And Jesus does not tell him about a wonderful plan or to give his heart to him. He goes deeper. So he goes to the law. And this ruler's response tells us a lot. All these commandments you quoted, I've kept them all. And not just for a day, but yeah, since I was a little kid. (laughs) From my youth. So the issue here is he does not yet understand God's law. And so he's blind to his true position and his need. I mean, if that's your attitude, what do you need a Savior for? So he's blind to his position and his need, like millions of others. Now, we know the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus expands on just the first two commandments he quoted up here. Do not murder, do not commit adultery. And he takes it from the merely external acts to the motives in the heart, right? the thoughts and desires. Sin as a power is alive and well inside before it ever exhibits itself externally. And sins. External sins aren't really the issue. Sin as a power or a law, as Paul would put it, is the problem. Sins are the fruit, sin is the root. I sin because I'm a sinner. And this man is saying, He's not done those thou shalt nots. And he has done all the thou shalt. Which is just interesting. Because contrast his answer with a few others who had an interaction with Jesus. Remember Peter when he first meets Christ. Depart from me, for I am a sinful man. Vastly different. Or the tax collector in the temple, sitting there beating his breast. Lord, have mercy on me, a sinner. Or even Isaiah, when he's ushered into the presence of God, what's he say? Woe is me, for I am a man of unclean lips. But this rich young ruler here, seemingly nice and humble enough to kneel and ask his question in broad daylight, is self-righteous. I mean, he does not seem to be obnoxiously so, right? Running around with holier than thou, at least right now at this time. But even though acting with some humility and seeming sincere, yet he is filled with self-righteousness. 
and seems completely unaware. Self-deceived. Man, that's dangerous. That's why I'm so glad that we have the Scriptures, something outside of ourselves, right? That can be a mirror. And between the Scriptures and the Spirit, show us where we are self-deceived. Because this guy is just completely self-deceived and filled with self-righteousness. Just like everyone who does not count Christ and His righteousness as their everything. Because blessed are the poor in spirit, right? Blessed are the bankrupt who realize they have nothing to offer God. Now this next verse floors me. And not for the normal go sell everything reason. And there's a lot to look at here. So verse 21, And Jesus looking at him, Now, stop right there. Forget you know the story for a minute. If you were reading along in here for the first time, what might you expect right here? And Jesus, looking at him, fried him on the spot with lightning for daring to think that he was good enough and had met God's requirements every day of his life. While standing before the Creator incarnate. (laughs) And there'd be nothing wrong with that. In fact, it would actually be just. Nobody could say a thing to God if He did just that. Right? Sometimes we forget the stories in the Bob Ananias and Sapphira, right? Boom, gone. What was the guy in the Old Testament? Ezra, was that it? The guy who reached out to touch the ark? Boom. Instant justice. Reminds me of a lesson I heard one time from uh, R.C. Sproul about justice surprises us and we expect grace because we live in such a sea of grace, right? That when God shows His instant justice, that is what shocks us. We're not shocked by His grace. We're shocked by when He is just and we have it backwards. Boy, that was one of those slap in the face. Seeing that. Right? So, if Jesus had zapped this guy right here on the spot, that would be just. But he doesn't. Instead, we need to camp here for a minute because it says something else. It says, And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Now, he just told the omnipotent creator of the universe that he has kept his law his whole life, when in reality, he hadn't kept it a single day of his life. None of us have. Yet Jesus looks at him and loves him. 
That's our Savior. That's our Savior. In His first advent and in the intervening time before His return, He's not come to judge the world, but to seek and save the lost. So we continue on. And said to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Now here's what floors me. Jesus, in essence, (coughs) runs him off. That is so shocking for a couple of reasons, right? First, in terms of today's techniques, right, this is nuts. You have a guy come to the right source, comes right up in the middle of the day, kneels down and asks, how can I be saved? And you just can't get a better setup than that. And Jesus runs him off. How could you blow this opportunity? And this was a softball. But Christ knows his heart, and he's not interested in a false convert. So that's the surprising part. Jesus, looking at him, loved him, and ran him off. Now, wait a minute. How in the world can that be love? How can that be love? Because you see... Love is when you affirm me as I am, right? Love is when you make me feel better about myself. Love is when I leave your presence feeling better about me. It's not love when I ask you a question and you blow me off and run me away. Think about how this rich young ruler felt. Crushed, right? I mean, it tells us next he was disheartened. And therefore, he felt anything but loved. But that's the worldly definition of love. Feelings of self-affirmation is love. No, that's not true love. True love is based on God's truth. It's based in the truth. True love wants the best for the other person, even if it hurts them. Ultimately, Christ is crushing this ruler's short-term hopes in order to save him from eternal punishment. That's love. It's real love to confront this ruler with his sin in order that he might repent and not spend eternity in hell. That's love. And real love helps another see Jesus truth more clearly. You want another example of this, that real love is helping someone else see Jesus ever more clearly, even at great cost or hurt. Well, that would be John 11. I'll just read a couple of verses here to you. It's something you're very familiar with. Now, a certain man was ill. Lazarus of Bethany, in the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. 
So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, This illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of Man may be glorified through it. And pay very, very close attention to this next verse. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So, he stayed two more days. Hmm. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Ever think about that? He loved them. So, he stayed. That so is vital. Jesus loved them, so he intentionally drags his feet and lets Lazarus die. And the family suffer grief. Can you imagine? And you can imagine them going, we went to Jesus in time. Where is he? We were there in time. Why wasn't he here? Doesn't he really love us? So what is love? And it's not, in this case, saving them from grief or disease or even death. It's showing them Himself. That's love. Right? He put them in this terrible situation from our perspective so that He could show up a few days later and raise Lazarus from the dead and show His glory, reveal His glory to them. And that's love. That was how He loved them. So never measure God's love by health or wealth or happiness, but by how much of Himself He shows you from His Word. And in your bad situations, which is where we see Him most clearly usually, isn't it? Well, that's Him loving you. In fact, in verse 15 in John 11 there, it says, where Jesus said He was glad Lazarus died so that they might see and believe. So that's love. So back to our text here in Mark 10. It says, Jesus loved this ruler by sending him away with a clearer view of his sin, of idolatry, and self-righteousness. So our view of love is that you affirm me and make me feel good in all my choices. God's view of love is to show you your sin, lead you to repentance, so you live eternally. So Jesus loved this ruler. He loved him enough to tell him something straight. Right? You think you've met all the horizontal requirements of the law between you and your fellow man. So let's test that. Let's go to commandment number one and see if you pass. Right? You think you've met all these horizontal commandments? So we're going we're, we're to go to commandment number one. Thank you. 
We're going to test you here. See if you pass. You shall have no other gods before me. Well, you have one, sir, to this rich young ruler, right? You have one. And I'm going to show it to you. Sell all your stuff and follow me. So Jesus loved him and said, you're an idolater. You have another God before me. So this is not a passage about money or how spiritual it is to take a vow of poverty. It is not that. It is not about being poor for Jesus. This is a passage about being an idolater and thinking that you're meeting the law of God And that God is impressed with your righteousness and will judge you worthy. Jesus could have asked him a piercing question on any of the Ten Commandments. But he went straight to the heart of the matter. This rich young ruler already had a God. And it wasn't one that could save him. He had to loosen his grip on his false God so he could grab onto the real one. So in verse 22 here, it says, Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Which was his guy. (laughs) That's how we know he was an idolater. Not because he bowed down to little stone images, but because he already had a little G-God, which was his great possessions that he would not give up, at least at this point in his life. And I don't think there's anything else in the Scriptures here that tells us anything further about this man, what he may have done later. But notice that Jesus loved him. And it says the man left disheartened. He didn't feel love as we define it today. You know, if Jesus said, you're right, you're a great guy, and the man left affirmed... And feeling great about himself, that's what the world would say love is. But he left disheartened because his self-righteousness and his idolatry, things that will drive him to eternal death, were exposed. But that was real love on Jesus' part. Interesting little story today, huh, about rich young ruler. A guy who seemed to have it all from the world's perspective but realized something was missing. Went to the right source, asked his question. Jesus hit on the two points. You don't realize who you're talking to and you don't realize that you're a sinner and then loved him enough to confront him with that. And say, let me show you that you already have a God. And he left disheartened. I hope later on this would not let this young man sleep until he got right with the Lord. But it doesn't tell us. We don't know what happened 
to him from there. And it makes you, makes you wonder, because later on, right, they say, well then, who can be saved? Who can be saved? As he continues on in this chapter. And Jesus looked at them and said, with man, it is impossible. Not possible. But not with God, for all things are possible with God including saving sinners like us. All right, let's close in a word of prayer.